Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Acorn TV. Acorn TV is your home for streaming British crime dramas and mysteries. It is the only place you can catch up and stream the newest season of the UK hit series Line of Duty starring Stephen Graham. It's a cat and mouse thriller from the creator of Bodyguard that takes a probing look into police corruption. Watch the first episode of season one for free at acorn.tv watch and start a free 30-day trial of Acorn TV with the code watch. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, no doubt making a funny face at the camera, it's Andy Greenwald! No, my guy, here's where I am with the fourth wall right now. Mm. I see it watching me and I just pushed it away like I'm in bed with a priest. <laughs> is that a spoiler? I don't think That's so. Andy and I are talking about Fleabag Season 2 this episode, but we'll talk about a couple of other things to start with. Uh, if you have not watched Fleabag season two, you can kind of like, we're going to spoil away. So I would basically take the second half of this podcast or however long it is we talk and just listen to it, you know, then. Chris, mm. also, I'm, I'm breaking news on this podcast. If you are listening to us in early May, are you in luck? Because I just finished Barry season two. Oh, man. So okay, let's talk about may, Barry you, too. You, you may have covered it extensively with your much more prepared coterie of guests. But what I'm saying is, I'm right here. I feel like Fennessy and Herman and I at various points talked about it, but we didn't. I don't think I talked about the very end of Barry. Well, uh, obviously that happened during Throne. So let's let's start to get into some of this stuff. At first, I just want to tell you that if I sound a little bit different, <laughs> it's because <laughs> I just tried to squeeze in a salad over at Sweetgreens. Okay. Sometimes the line's a little long, so it's like it's always a gamble. And they switched the menu today, so they've gone over to summer the summer menu, which is okay. You know, it, it's how I mark time. Is, is this SpawnCon right now? No. Are we sponsored by? Okay. Here's what I want to do though. I'm dealing with a lot right now because you know they got rid of the Green Goddess Ranch, which is how I Uh-oh. usually dress up my salads. But they got rid of it. But my guy behind the counter was like, "I have three left over." <laughs> Like what? Go cups of ranch, and I was like, "Dude, just actually, just like top me off with that. Just all the ranch you got, just put it in the salad." And I have to admit, it's a soggy salad. Even Kai remarked from a distance, "That looks like a wet salad." <laughs> Can I ask you another question? And yeah. maybe this isn't the best thing to be doing live on mic, but are we sure that their proprietary ranch is shelf stable? I mean, there's probably a reason it was shuffling off the menu. No, today. it's because the farmers mean? market dictates that it's not. It's no longer Green Goddess Ranch season. I think the Department of Health may have dictated. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody Just, can have like such exotic lunch tastes as you. You know, Andy. Andy's office has like incredible yeah. lunch gets. Yeah, we do okay. Mm-hmm. We do okay. You know. <laughs> They make they all make fun of me though because lunch comes and I say I don't think I want this and then I make a sad sandwich. <laughs> Why not? Don't you order it the night before? <laughs> That's the problem. So this is this is this is thanks for tuning into America's number one lunch podcast. By the way, I'm sure we're not even top ten lunch podcasts, <laughs> but we could get there. One of the things that I instituted in the Briar Patch Writers Room, which is ending tomorrow, by the way, all the weepy face emojis, was that in my previous experience in rooms, lunch ordering and the mystery of lunch ordering and the deciding on the restaurant and then the dithering over the choices and then the dragging everyone else for their choices, that took up at least half of the day, if not the entire morning. <laughs> so I instituted a policy of everyone orders the night before, which has worked great. There's only one problem, which you is that when you that get... policy? Like you made that policy? Yes. Yeah. That's our office policy. You just and, came through and, like Mnuchin and you were like, I have a new policy here? You and my older daughter have the same response when they hear that I'm in charge of anything. <laughs> like, both of you respond like Jason Bateman in Arrested Development. You're like, her? We sure? Anyway, the danger of the pre-morning or pre-lunchtime order, like the pre-bedtime, is that when you get the menu fired up on your, your MacBook or whatever you may be using, you've probably just had some dinner. Maybe you've had a after dinner, maybe you've had a cheese plate. I don't know your life. But the big point is you are not thinking realistically. You are not thinking that at 1230 tomorrow, you may be shaky. You may need like a, maybe you just need a chicken sandwich. At that moment in time, you're like, I'll be fine with an arugula salad. That's when you make mistakes. (laughs) And that mistake results in deep sadness. That's when when you wind up 
with with past due date ranch dressing all over some spinach. <laughs> yeah, no, look, it's it's a slippery slope, and I realize somehow we ended up at the same part of that story, just covered in expired. So expired dairy. I thought maybe we could give the listeners a little bit of a peek behind the curtain since you are about to begin production on the show, which I think yeah. is like just obviously another small chapter in this long story that is in and of itself a dream come true. But you guys are writing up, you're finishing up the writing of it. I'm being brought in to do a page one rewrite. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, it's make, amazing that we're getting along. Make sure I tie Briar Patch into the extended Bumblebee universe. Uh, yeah, you know. that was a weird last minute studio <laughs> request, but I do think it's possible. Look, I do think it's possible. We um, didn't, we hadn't established John Cena as anything in our show, so I think I, it's, I think it's doable. And you went down to Albuquerque this week to to kind of check out the set. So tell me how things are going. Things are going great. Thanks for asking. Writers remains tomorrow. We're in good shape with the scripts. Still some more to do, but but everybody seems happy. That's been really fun, and writers have been a total dream. Going down to Albuquerque is funny because, you know, this is a show You're the first that person I thought, to find it funny. <laughs> well, listen, here's the thing. There is something about this that that is perpetually surreal, which is that, you know, a couple of years ago, I thought it would be fun to do this loose adaptation of a book that I liked. And the next thing I know, fast forward a couple of years, there is a thriving corporation, basically, in Albuquerque right now, where they've been working for weeks, there's an entire construction mill just detailing an elevator cab for an elevator that I asked to have in a hotel hallway that they are also building on our giant airplane hangar sized stage, and all these brilliant and talented people just working on it. Mm. And it's an incredible honor. It's incredibly exciting. It's also pretty funny because they've been there for weeks and I've been resolutely here just ordering, <laughs> just making salad mistakes in my normal life. And I flew down there and the beauty of it was every single person in the office, certainly potentially in, you know, South Albuquerque total had a question, a really important question that I had to answer. And so I and found it myself. It wasn't just what do you want for lunch tomorrow? I chose a turkey sandwich, by the way. <laughs> I was on that. I knew I'd be talking all day. I needed that prote. You know what I mean? But listen, uh, <laughs> there was a moment yesterday, and I'm, I'm really got great people working on this. It's really awesome. But there was a moment yesterday where I was in our prop master's office, and he was giving me four different options of an ice sculpture for a party scene. And I had to choose. Everyone's looking at me. You know, and it's of an ice sculpture of an animal, and I won't say more because I don't want to spoil anything, but I, I, I turned to the paid, well-paid professionals surrounding me, and in explaining that I was choosing option one, I looked to them as if I was about to hand over the nuclear codes, and I was like, option two is too llama-like. <laughs> it's just too llama-like. And, 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 and here's why people go crazy in this business. It's because they all just nodded sagely. They're yeah. like, this guy. Yeah, they were like, this guy, how could we ever question him? Like, this is a leader. That's a you great, know, like, this is, great point about the llamas. This guy is decisive. So, you know, it is incredible. It's just also deeply insane because we have been, you know, you came and visited us. You saw us here. We're just dreaming big. No one ever tells you to dream smaller. And then there are just these dedicated craftsmen who have to make our nonsense a reality and find the place that looks like the place that we rode and stage it and close off the street and get the ice sculptures and... You know, it's uh, it's humbling, honestly, but it is it's also exciting. And yeah, I've been talking to the actors. I've been seeing their fittings. We've got some cast stuff to announce soon that I'm thrilled about. It's fun, man. And you're going to come visit, right? We're going to we're going to record live from the stage. Well, I'll be down there the with set? John Cena uh, filming <laughs> all the alternative endings for episodes. Is he is he like a process guy? Does he like to get, you know, show up early? He and I are just going to move into a trailer together and just kind of work through the material line by line. I'll really unpack the script, you know? How do you do method? Like, if you cast a method actor in a Transformers film, where <laughs> your part is a guy who lives in a world where there are fucking Transformers, like, how do you method that for a couple weeks? Like, if I, Daniel Day-Lewis was in one of those movies, that's <laughs> what a, You know, it's funny you should be? say that because I was looking at, like, the list of movies that are coming out. I, don't, I can't even remember. I think it's next year they were doing some one of the studios was maneuvering some stuff around and they were saying that they were like making room for the Snake Eyes movie, the G.I. Joe Snake Eyes movie. Oh, gotta make room for and that. And I was like, I don't even know who's playing Snake Eyes because I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt played him in one of those movies, but I, I don't even know. Or He was somebody, <laughs> right? 
Uh, you're not helping me. But I, the, you're asking the wrong. Yeah. But the uh, I was thinking about how funny it would be if uh, at the end of the Snake Eyes movie he took his mask off and it was Daniel Day Lewis and then Daniel Day Lewis was like, <laughs> "I retire." And uh, so yeah, I w- I would love to find out how DDL would prepare to play like Assassin's Creed. You know, like how he would <laughs> do one of those roles. <laughs> and he was like, well, I have to go back to medieval Rome to train to be an assassin. But he would also have to learn parkour and yes. like learn how to deploy multiple daggers while balletically <laughs> leaping off of roofs, right? Yeah. Like that's my understanding of what that franchise is. It's so just it's essentially he would have roofs. to be Keanu Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> so one other thing before we move on to the other TV, because we haven't spoken in a minute into microphones. And I just, I had to come clean about something. Which is, you know, every few weeks or so, there's a new Star Wars trailer or uh, something. And, and, and I like to come on here and in a v- hopefully a very polite and respectful and loving way, basically be like, let's all relax. We still have our action figures in our attics. Like, there's no reason to lose it over this latest iteration of, you know, seeing the Knights of the Old Republic or whatever, right? Like, it, yeah. it, hopefully in a respectful way, I am um, skeptical of fanboy culture. <laughs> then last week... There was a trailer released for the CBS All Access series, Star Trek Picard. Uh Uh-huh. And I was like literally buying convention tickets. Are you fucking serious? Really? I got, that that shit got me. Are you a Next Generation fan? Listen, listen, not only do I love Next Gen, not only do I love that character, the thing, this is, this is, this is such a telling on myself, but listen, I'm about to go to the desert for four months. So I feel like this is my last will and testament. Let it be. Um, not only did I love Picard, you never, did you ever watch that show? Yeah. Like on, uh, on syndication sometimes. Yeah. This is the most on brand thing maybe I've ever said in, <laughs> into this microphone, but like the finale of that show, sorry, spoilers of a 25 year old show jumps around in time, you know, oh. and it shows John Luke and it shows John Luke having returned to earth and he's working at a humbled vineyard in Bordeaux. <laughs> I think I remember And this that. trailer is pure Bordeaux porn. It's just old Patrick Stewart just running his hands through the terroir. But then he Producing goes, the vintage of like 2473. Does he go back into space? <laughs> Frankly, I hope not. So what you, if this show You want was Sideways just, with fiction. Jean-Luc Picard? I just, no, I just want wine show with Jean-Luc Picard. That was, for those who don't know, that was when Matthew Reese and Matthew Good just drank wine on camera. <laughs> like, I don't need any space here. I would like him to be just checking the bricks level of the harvest and someone being like, yo, Admiral, the Vulcans are at it again. And he'll be like, look, I'd love to help you, but Phylloxera is running rampant again <laughs> in 2473. These vines are sick. I loved it. I pure loved it. Because I, I thought you were going to say, like, I'm trying to keep the inner fanboy quiet and tell everybody to temper expectations. Yeah. But that you were moving into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> no, listen, what I'm most afraid of in admitting this is not, you know, the, 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 the takes on the internet that, I'm, that maybe I'm a hypocrite or, or whatever. It's facing me in the future now is that I'm going to have to learn how to sign up for CBS All Access. And I honestly... <laughs> can't even begin to imagine i think we have a promo code for that yeah look hook me up but just let's just wait till that picard that new picard drop happens because that's that's me um that's my good fight well you get caught up on the good fight i i'm really gallagher jason gallagher who works here and does a lot of our amazing ringer original the emmy award-winning emmy award-winning jason gallagher along with jason concepcion the producers of desktop obviously gallagher's taking his kid to galaxy's edge on friday for like opening day Wow. Yeah. And I was like, you know what's weird is that um, for all the attractions that they have there, like you can walk through the Millennium Falcon and interact with stormtroopers and stuff. I really want to try the blue milk. I've wanted to know what that tasted like since I saw A New Hope for the first time. So they have that, what do they have it on tap next to the turkey legs? I don't know. I don't know. You know me. I'm the guy who likes to go out there and try perhaps past due date ranch. So... I don't know what, what I expect from Blue Milk, but yeah, like they have the full Star Wars menu and beverage menu. And even like the beers and sodas you get are shaped like little droids. Listen, there are two things 
at my advanced age and at where I am in life that shock me. Why do you keep talking about yourself like you're B. Arthur? Listen to me. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm not B. Arthur. I'm Estelle Getty in the early seasons when she was actually younger than everyone else, but wore <laughs> old makeup. Okay. That's me. Um, here's what astounds me when I meet other adults. That these are two things that you can tell me as a fellow adult that will just leave my jaw on the floor. One is that you stay awake by choice past 11 p.m. <laughs> that is insane to me. Uh, Two, that you are up on theme parks. Well, like there, there is someone here in my writer's room whom I adore, whom I love working with, who does not have children, doesn't have a child, certainly not Jason Gallagher's kid's age or, or doesn't have kids, but was prepping us for this Star Wars theme park, was aware of it, was tracking it, and was saying that if I wanted to take my kids to Disney, I should do it any day before this opening date, because otherwise it will be impossible for the next three years. That's right. Uh, Greenwald, I've done some instant research. So I have answers to all your questions. Wait, be honest. Did you actually use that time when I was talking about things that frighten and confuse me <laughs> to Google or were you eating more salad? No, no. So the blue milk at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is available at the milk stand. And Ew. blue milk costs $8 a glass. And the ingredients Jesus. are coconut and rice milk with dragon fruit, pineapple, lime, and watermelon flavoring. That, I don't like the sound of any of this. Am I wrong? I don't know, but there's a dude in a picture that goes along with this who's wearing a long sleeve Stormtrooper t-shirt and he looks like Ansel Elgort and he is fucking crushing this blue milk and he looks psyched about life. And then other food there includes Kat Saka's kettle where you can munch on Outpost Mix, a sweet savory snack made with popcorn created by Batu farmer Kat Saka who collects okay. spices from around the galaxy. <laughs> Is this revenge for me saying I was excited about a <laughs> Star on. Trek show? You can also go to Ronto Roasters that have a bunch of different offerings in the morning and at night, and they, you, you can get like a wrap there. That's that's where you know classic Star Wars wraps include. <laughs> also, a Nuna Turkey Jerky is available, so that looks pretty good. Stop it! Stop it! I mean, I don't can know, you, you want me to can continue? you drink alcohol? Dock, docking at this Bay place? Seven. Yeah, you can. There's like a Pleasure Island within it. I think a Did Pleasure Island within. Galaxy's Edge. Star Wars World? Is there a Moss Eisley Cantina? I um, hold on. I'm scrolling. Keep vamping. Are you going? No, I'm Are you going? I would. If they I would definitely go. I would definitely go. Kaya, wow. does this sound Just interesting keep... to you? Oh, I've been uh texting Nick about this like, all week. <laughs> what? <laughs> Have you really? Yes. I sent him several videos yesterday of people at oh, Galaxy's Edge. And I was like, let's go. Okay, wait, I found the booze one. I hope people find this interesting. We're just we're we're just kind of killing time before we talk about Fleabag. But drinking at Galaxy's Edge. Shout out to slashfilm.com, who's got all the all the jams here. Rex and Oga. Oh, Oga is the proprietary. I got it. This isn't good content. Listen, here's the good content. Can we have Gallagher on to talk about it? Yeah, we can get him on. Well, you're not gonna be here. I'll have him on. I, I can call in for this. I wanna know. <laughs> you Listen, can get a I, I, I've I, I managed a, to limit the Star Wars content in my household, and that's about to end. So I need to I need to be up on this. You can get a, a cliff dweller for $32 with a Porg souvenir mug, and it's citrus juices, coconut, hibiscus, grenadine, and Seagram's ginger ale. Just just bathe me in it. Sounds great. All right. Um, All right. We, 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 we're, we're going to, we're on this story, people. I don't want anyone to think that there's a dearth of news and we'll, events in we'll pop follow culture up. with we'll Thrones follow. done. Okay, so let's... Take a quick break, hear from our sponsors, come back, and we're going to talk about Fleabag and Barry. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Luminary. If you were a movie buff, which I like to consider myself a movie buff, and if you were a Bill Simmons fan, and I love Bill Simmons, then you have to listen to his new podcast called The Rewatchables 1999, which is only available on Luminary. I appear on very many of these episodes, but I also am a huge fan of just listening to them. I listened to the first episode. I can't wait to hear more of Amanda and Mallory and Sean and Bill, and I guess me, talking about the great movies from 1999. We just did The Insider. We had a ton of fun doing that one. And it got so hot in the studio where we were recording that, that at one point, me, Sean, and Bill were all doing Al Pacino imitations at once. It just got pretty... Dizzy. We basically take a movie from 1999 
usually with Bill Simmons, and there's a rotating cast of people from The Ringer, and we dissect the most iconic movies from the year, an all-time great year in film. Each episode breaks down a different movie with a highly specific categories, analyzing it from every possible angle. The categories include most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, best quote, could this movie be made into a Netflix series in 2019, overacting award. Uh, the series covers uh, movies such as American Pie, Off Space, The Matrix, and more classics from 99. And along with the rewatchables, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else. The Luminary app is free to download and you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including The Watch. How about that one? All enhanced by an easy-to-use interface with personalized content recommendations, whether you're into news and politics, comedy, business and tech, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. If you love podcasts, then you need to check out Luminary and Luminary has a special offer for watch listeners. If you sign up by going to luminary.link slash watch, you will get your first two months of Luminary's premium content for free. So that's Rewatchables 1999, Fiasco, whatever, all the premium stuff. You get that for free for two months with that link. That's luminary.link slash watch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash watch. Cancel anytime terms apply. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. Are you wanting to put the heat back into your relationship with breakfast? A hot breakfast can often seem like too much work, but not when you head over to the egg aisle and pick up Just Crack an Egg. Just Crack an Egg is a hot, fluffy breakfast scramble that'll have you falling in love with hot breakfast all over again. Simply crack a fresh egg over their hearty breakfast fixins, then stir, microwave, and reignite your love of breakfast in less than two minutes. Something else you'll love about Just Crack an Egg, it has no artificial flavors, dyes, or preservatives. Plus, it comes in seven different varieties, including veggie, Denver, Southwest-style, protein-packed, and all-American. I happen to love the protein-packed one, but you can't go wrong with any of these flavors. Don't wait for the weekend to add a little hot, hearty breakfast love to your AM. It's time to run with your arms wide open to the egg aisle and take breakfast back with Just Crack an Egg. Greenwald, we are back. Uh, what would you like to talk about first? Because I feel like the, these are both really interesting shows. They don't have a ton to do with each other other than maybe making, um, I don't know, I want to say unlikable, but complicated protagonists. They both have complicated protagonists trying to do good in the world, I think. But um, I, Fleabag is certainly more fresh for me, but we can talk about whichever one you want to talk about first. Here, here's what, the way I think we should do it. I think we should just touch briefly on Barry just to sort of discuss it in its place in the firmament, what changed in the second season. Because uh, you know, I, other than the fact that I think both shows are special because they have very, very, very firm senses of who and what they are. Yes. I think that's what sets them apart. I think that is what links them. Other than that, there's not much to talk about because I think Barry had an excellent second season. I think it's one of the strongest shows on TV, but I think Fleabag is a transcendent experience that honestly makes me want to quit what I'm trying to do, but also feel very good about that decision because that show exists in the world. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the one that doesn't make me feel that way, but inspires me and, and is incredible, uh, which was Barry. Yeah. And you know, there's something, I just wanted to start from that point, which is a little bit abstract, but I think you understand what I mean, which is to say that if we were, if we ever had concerns about the show, um, mild criticisms, concerns that we expressed, if we were concerned trolling it even, it was over the subject of its tone and balancing the tone between the pretty broad comedy that's in characters like Noho Hank and sometimes, you know, Barry's reactions or Bill Hader's performance with the very serious life and death consequences of the action surrounding it. And I'm done with that particular lane of concern because this show knows what it is. We don't need to worry about its line because it knows its line. And in the second season, it juggled it expertly with a degree of pathos and empathy and um, curiosity about emotional experience that really floored me, honestly. Because if you pulled away and just looked at some of the things this show chose to tackle in its second season from abusive relationships or why people stay in them to out and out war crimes that any show comedy or drama would, ha would struggle with just one of those topics. And I, you know, I wouldn't pretend to say that this was a documentary or a harrowing exactly pulled from one person's life exemplar of, of truth telling. But I thought that the show handled both topics with such 
curiosity and empathy and honestly grace, even though it was, you know, it's, it's very much a comedy. I was truly, truly impressed by it. Yeah. I think that the, the, your point is really well taken because, uh, both of these shows, but you know, for Barry specifically this season, I thought became its own reference point. Like even though Hater obviously is drawing from a lot of cinematic influences and even though, you can see different things pop up in different episodes, and he's working with Hiro Mirai and other uh, filmmakers around, and Alec Berg and everybody else on the show on creating something like this. It f- sort of found its own voice, and your point about the different kind of outposts of the show, Noho Hank, Fuchs, the acting class with Kusuno, even though each one of those sort of worlds is a little bit tonally distinct from the other, Mm-hmm. I felt like one of the brilliant parts about this season was the way in which those things not only started to overlap, but also how you realize that, and I think Barry realized that he was the contaminator in those worlds. Like mm-hmm. he was the consistent thing that was making each one of the little worlds that he occupied violent and and uh, angst-ridden and unpredictable and chaotic. And I, th- and I think he finally like re- kind of came to that conclusion a little bit towards the end of the season. So the question of, is Barry a good or bad man or can a bad man become a good man is, well, that's just television since 2001, basically. Mm-hmm. But the idea that can you as a person exist in these highly compartmentalized worlds that you're trying to pretend like you're different people to different people. Mm-hmm. What happens when you're the consistent thing that runs through it and you start bringing your own poison basically into each one of those worlds? I thought that was so interesting to watch this year. Yeah, I think that again, it goes, it speaks to the strong grasp that Haterberg have on the character where they didn't dither. You know, they have affection for the character. They obviously like writing the character and exploring him, but they don't have any uh, illusions about him either. There is no um, sentimentality, no desire to clean him up, which I think, you know, it, it can be, a, when, when, especially for when you're writing something and you love that thing, you want to sort of protect it or, or show everyone why you love it by making it shinier. And I don't think they have any illusions about that. It's very clear, certainly by the way this season ended, which we won't necessarily spoil because of why. I think we can spoil that, it if you want. Yeah. But, the, but I mean, I just mean specifically like the last beat. That last beat suggests a show that has a, definitely, definitely has a clock. That, mm-hmm. you know, they have a sense of how long the story is, whether it's three seasons or four, it's definitely not more than four. And I wouldn't be surprised if they walked away after three, honestly. That's really impressive unsung heroes in it. I mean, Sarah Goldberg's performance this season was phenomenal. That monologue, I mean, there's already been whole posts written about it on Vulture, but like deservedly so. I had to watch it again to see if there were cuts because it's just dazzling. And that's in the second to last episode. The cinematographer, Paula Widobro, is just so, so brilliant. The lighting consistently is so thoughtful and haunting and affecting. Henry Winkler's performance just went to another place and another level emotionally anchoring it. And then ultimately the fact that the show is so ballsy and fearless about story. And yet it doesn't feel like trickery. I said a few weeks ago when I was in a darker place and plotting my own show that like making plans is impossible in real life for dinner. So why do we think as writers, we can come up with clever plans for characters to do? Yeah. Barry's very elegant. It's not actually that complicated how he gets out of certain jams. No, it's just I mean, considered. it's, it's actually, a decision. It, it, it has that element. I think when Ro- the Ronnie Lilly episode with the, the little mm-hmm. kid aired, I noticed this the most about some of the, the sort of Tarantino feel to it. And typically, like what I said was, you associate Tarantino-ism with maybe extreme violence, with incredibly literate, hyper-aware and snappy dialogue, which is like a very, that's like at its base level, how you might describe Tarantino's style filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Barry seemed to have it with the logic where this guy is not like, yeah, you're right. It's not Ocean's Eleven. He's not breaking into the Bellagio. He has just got a lot of violence in him. And I don't think he particularly cares whether he lives or dies. He may care about whether or not he gets in trouble, but I don't know if if his survival is paramount to him. And so he will walk into a, a temple, you know what I mean? And just start shooting people. And morally, we can have that discussion, but you're right. The, the plotting is like unencumbered by bullshit in a, in a real way. Yeah, and, and, and just, I, I just want to use that word again, elegant. 
like pushing all the chips into the center of the table and having that Fuchs Cousineau scene that's in the penultimate episode and yeah. plays in the finale. And then having, you know, pushing us to an impossible place where we can't imagine anyone getting out of this. And we're imagining all these strange turns that the show might have to do in season three to handle the fact that it's major, you know, it's secondary second lead is would be in prison or something. The simplicity of the Chechen pin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's just elegant because what it does is, is, is it solves the present problem, but it, but they, but it allows them the space to then do the harder emotional longer term character story thing, which is the big reveal that ends the season. You know, that's the more interesting story and having the clean, relatively simple solution to the other one gets us into the naughtier terrain. I'm just, you know, I'm just impressed by it. And it's one of the reasons why I think, I think it's doing, I'm sure it's doing well, you know, in ratings, it gets a lot of attention, but you may see it. Uh, we certainly saw this at the last Emmys, but I think it'll be even more so this year, why it may be overrepresented um, at the awards this year or seemingly surprisingly so, because I do think that all the, all the um, uh, tradespeople, I guess I want to call it from directors who see what Hero Mariah and Liza Johnson and other people are doing on the show and Bill Hader himself to writers, to you know, cinematographers. I think people just admire what a first class production it seems to be. Yeah. And I think that the first, in the first season, you, you know, it was very obviously a, a, like a high concept show about a, a hitman who decided to, who fell into acting and found himself in this acting uh, troupe in the San Fernando Valley working with this sort of failed, failed actor as their teacher. I think it got much more complex and, and probing in this second season mm-hmm. and not, not even to like, you know, blow it out of proportion. But when you think about what, uh, what kind of united the various storylines that were happening? So you've got the Sally Cousineau area with the acting. You've got the NoHo Hank crime, the gangland struggle going on between mm-hmm. uh, with him, and then you've got Fuchs. You basically have all these little triangles of people who are pushing and pulling towards who they think they are versus who they are, right? And that was very in- indicative of Sally's plot, where she was at first. She was like here's when I told this guy to fuck off. And then it turns out like not only was she this, this, she had this terrible thing inflicted on her, but she, you know, she couldn't leave this guy, you know, when the way, at least not the way she thought she did. And then Mm -hmm. it's actually the lie that people want at the end. And in some ways, you know, Kusinov spends the entire season pretty much catatonic and then is, has been kind of telling himself stories about whether he's a father or whether he was, whether what Janice meant to him and then at the end kind of remembers what really happens, you know, like, because it mm-hmm. takes him a while to remember the Fuchs thing. And then Barry and his relationship to his his war crime, right? And in a way, mm-hmm. I kind of like it because it's constantly challenging the viewer on their relationship to Barry as a character. You're kind of constantly being, here's like an incredibly likable, personable, charming, normal guy in Hater playing a super fucked up killer and it doesn't let you off the hook by being like barry's cool you know no and and it it did the same thing with the sally character too you know i think that the writing staff took her to the next level this year you know and i don't know if it's a question of new people in the room or just you know a little more thought given to her and who she is but again it was a calibration issue over you know of narcissism versus truth and you end up with a place, a person who is beautifully complicated and not tip too far in either direction. It was just super impressive. Absolutely. But we should save some room for what is the most impressive thing you're probably going to see on TV this year. Um, yeah. I mean, we haven't I, done I, this in a really long time, I don't think. Like, we've been very excited about shows. We were very excited about Fosse Verdon. We were very excited about lots of yeah. shows. I don't even know if, like, and, you know, Obviously, long-time watch listeners know that we're not very consistent with our awards to things. Uh, yeah. I don't even think a belt is sufficient for what Fleabag Season 2 is. I would give Fleabag Season 2 a small brass bust uh, stolen <laughs> yeah. from the home of someone's parents in London. I, so let's let's set the stage a little bit. Fleabag Season 1 is brilliant. Uh-huh. It's available on Amazon. Hopefully I, can, many people I just want to say I, I, I found that tough sledding at times. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, so maybe I was not like for everyone. Into it. I clearly had a very, very sharp voice. Thought she was very funny. I got a little tired of 
of the turning to the camera stuff uh, and like some of the gimmicks within the show. I thought it was effective and I certainly found it digestible since it's very short episodes. But I was like, I get it and I like it, but I don't love it. Okay. And and that's changed for you in season two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the best thing I've seen all year. Like, if something's yeah, better it, than this, it will be like one of the best shows of all time. You know? It is jaw-dropping because I you know I, I thought season one was was pretty amazing and I think you know we, we were talking about this and we were talking about season one of Killing Eve I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is probably the best writer for the screen any screen living like her words don't sound like anybody else's they go places no one else's go they they dance they're electric they're thrilling you know it's just it's just a joy. And, and I will say also, when, um, when combined with Harry Bradbeer's direction, who worked with her on the first three Killing Eves, Fleabag season one and Fleabag season two, it's just an incredible creative partnership. But there's something about this second season, and, it, and, we, and we can get into it. We can talk about Andrew Scott's performance as the hot priest. We can talk about every other actor on it, quite honestly, from Kristen Scott Thomas, who makes an incredible guest turn to the brilliant actors that fill out the members of her family. But there's something larger at play here, which is to take something that was good, to look at it critically but lovingly from all angles, as Phoebe Waller-Bridge probably did. And truly lovingly, because it started as a one-woman show that she did at the Edinburgh Festival, and now she's been performing again in London and in New York. And to say, here's what I was doing then. Here's what this could be now. And here's the ways that I can directly engage with and comment on what I thought I was doing. And and reorient you as to what the story really was. Because a lot of the commentary about Fleabag season one was about, you know, she's sort of, she's hiding her grief, she's hiding her shame, her embarrassment, she's hiding them in in drink and in, in sex. And a lot of the attention sort of, it got wonderful praise, but, you know, people were talking about, oh, she's so frank. It's kind of like a, you know, maybe in the same way people talked about girls or something like that. What she was making, as it turns out, was step one of a now two parks, there's no reason to ever have any others show about how we live with ourselves Mm -hmm. and how we can learn to be present and accept things and quite frankly, move on and move on both from a character and an era in her life as a performer and writer, but also just move on emotionally. And to do that with the funniest writing and set pieces that I can imagine. And some of the, just the hottest chemistry and, and romance, it's, I just can't quite put into words I'm so dazzled by it, which is not the place you'd want to be as a critic, podcaster, or commentator, but I'm still wrestling with just how astonishing I found this and what a true transcendental joy it was to watch it. Yeah, you know, I was trying to think of uh, what shortcut this show took because it doesn't feel possible that something that's 22 minutes, six, six times 22 to 27 minutes should yep. be allowed to feel this significant. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess I guess that's just where we are, but it doesn't feel fair. So as we, I finished the season last night, and I was thinking like, oh, what did she do? That not that it cut a corner, but what like a f- market inefficiency is she exploiting, or is she not doing? So I'm like, okay, like maybe it's like that. It's not very densely plotted, but it it is it is quite densely plotted. Pretty much every single thing you see has some consequence you know what even down to claire and claire's relationship mm-hmm. her sister's relationship with oh some gosh, like so great. comic this this sort of finished businessman that she has and it's also named claire yeah every line has its sort of mirror so even obviously with this like sort of the, what it would have been a much talked about closing scene but that is a idea that gets kicked around throughout the six episodes Brett Gelman's character, who is really just an antagonist, but actually has a moment of of self-actualization that then itself is rejected, which I thought was really well played by the three actors in that scene. Every single thing that drama and comedy and television and whatever, however, just great writing is present. And it's like, I don't even think it's diet anything. I don't think it's it's pared down. I don't think it's, it feels maximalist. Mm-hmm. The London that they live in feels completely realized. Um, I, I, I have no complaints about this show. And yeah. I'll go even further and say, I'm 41. You're, 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 we're the same age. 
we've seen a lot of television. We've seen a lot of movies. We've read a lot of books. I feel like my nerve endings get a little dried up after a while where like I'm not mm-hmm. kind of like feeling it as much as I'm appreciating it. I was like a fucking mess at the at the Andrew Scott homily at the wedding. Like am I am I, I crazy know. for saying that? Like I was just like that's like pretty profound. Like I, and and just that whole last episode I was like Jesus Christ, how is this on television? I know. It to, for it to work on every level, performance, direction, emotion, Olivia Coleman, who just won an Oscar, is just in the show, just having fun in the background, being yeah. outrageous. The thing that, that, that I come back to a lot with the way that she writes and performs is that there's like a, it's, there's this vivacious sense of play to it. It, she's, she's winking and commenting, but really she's smiling. You know, it is not judgy. It is not snarky. The smile that ends the season and the series is so genuine and heartfelt. And I think about the way that the show takes a fourth wall breaking device that could be an affectation that maybe some people bumped on you included in the first season and actually considers what it is, embraces it, interrogates it, makes it a plot point in a way that is so shocking and staggeringly, honestly, it's just brilliant, is it's inspiring that there is still a way to approach this medium and this storytelling and to communicate the most challenging things to communicate, which are genuine emotion, genuine affection between people, you know, genuine romance, genuine loss, all of those things that we're chasing to do it in this package, which we should say again is six episodes of under 30 minutes each. Yeah. You can Um, watch it in a night. You can easily just watch it in a night or you can do what I did, which is try to stretch it out and make it last for three weeks. Basically. Let me talk about that, which is, you know, we've talked about before individually about how it's challenging to find co-watches these days, things that we can watch with our wives that we watch together. Fleabag season one was one of those for, for me and my wife. We eagerly anticipated this season two. We watched the first two episodes. We were going to do two episodes a night. Uh, I think we watched a third the next night and we were going to take a break. I went to bed, woke up around like midnight the lights were on and I was like, what's going on? And then I fell back asleep again. And then the next day I was like, were you up late? Because again, as I said, I don't trust people who stay up past 11, especially <laughs> who have children who come to wake them up at 5.30. Um, and she was like, oh yeah, I just, I, I had some work to do. And I was like, okay, great. No problem. We then watched episode four. We then watched episode five and six. And it was only when I overheard her at a birthday party talking to someone about it that I realized <laughs> she was so in love with this show. She, she stayed up till one in the morning finishing it yeah. and then watched it again with me. I cannot stress how rare that is. And let me take it one step further. Do you know what she did to prove her true devotion to the show? What? She Googled actors to learn more about them, which is something <laughs> that she has never done. Did she pretend like she hadn't watched it when you guys finished it? Yes. So yes. she was like, and "Wow, she, sick the fox." <laughs> you know, you know, you know how she, you know, how she played. You know, her 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 one error was when the inevitable happens between Fleabag and the priest. I believe she credits ran. And she turned to me. And I believe she said, "I did not think that was going to happen at all." <laughs> That's like which the only. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, but the only other time that I know this has happened was that she couldn't wait to see there will be blood. Saw it in the theater and then went with me a few days later on a weekend. I think uh-huh. and I I remember two things about the movie. One, I mean, amazing movie. Two, I was just blindingly hungover when I went to see it and. We're getting to the movie. You know, it's quite a long movie. And I leaned over at one point. And I was like, I think I have to go to the restroom. And she grabbed my arm and she said, this isn't a good place to do that. And, and I was so hungover. I was like, wow, she must be really keyed into the story of Daniel Plainview. You know, like she must understand the psychology behind what he's doing here. And this next scene with his, I want to say, brother is going to be important. You may, Maybe she was just trying to save you from the Court Street movie theater bathroom. That would have been worth the stop, but she admitted later that she had seen the film already. So there's no higher praise from my household than can I, I could possibly imagine. Obviously, like there's not enough that, you know praise you could kind of heap on what Phoebe Waller-Bridge did here, both as a writer and as an actor. Can I take a quick minute for Andrew Scott, though? You need he deserves all the minutes we can afford to give him. So you know, obviously, most people would probably know him from playing Moriarty in the BBC's version of Sherlock with Cumberbatch and. I thought he was really awesome, even though, like, I still don't really understand what happened <laughs> to his character in Sherlock. <laughs> like, on some basic, like, I guess I need to just get the Cliff Notes version. 
you know, he comes into this show sort of, he gets eased in, he's in the dinner scene in the beginning, uh, and their relationship really picks up over the last couple of episodes. And, you know, I think that, I I, I think this had, I was it ever officially called Fleabag versus God? I, I don't, or is that the stage version of it? I don't, I thought that, that, that was flying around a little bit. But it's only uh, kind of tangentially about religion per se. I think it's about obviously a search for meaning and a search for uh, purpose in your life, which is obviously what a lot of people look to religion for. But the way that he is the other side of that as somebody who has given up a lot of the sort of more day-to-day pleasures of his life to find that higher purpose, and she's someone who gives into those urges at the at the risk of not having any kind of higher purpose and the two people find each other and the fact that that's happening and they have this chemistry which is electric and that you literally are just kind of like I have this could go any number of ways where they could be in love they could anything could happen and he doesn't have a name and she doesn't have a name and the only things you really know about them are these kind of side comments people make about you know things that have happened to them, especially with that character, the the priest character, it's like obviously has a problem with alcohol or a relationship with alcohol and is kind of skirts around like his biography and whether he gets along with his family or not. And you can kind of just infer a lot of stuff about it. And, you know, you, you I read an interview with him on Vulture where he talked about how whenever, you know, whenever we talk about character, there's all these questions people have. Well, what's it, where do you go to school? And what did, and he was like, I didn't even need to know this guy's name like it was really more of like a feel thing. It was really more of an inhabiting this person. And, you know, I just thought that the what they had on screen and what what the story that they told together was really, really special. I mean, imagine, I mean, they knew each other. They, they'd acted together. Um, and so, you know, the best artistic relationships tend to be ones that are, you know, have some history or some some foundation beneath them. So I was going to say, imagine writing dialogue, knowing it's going to be performed that way. She had that luxury. I think, you know, she wrote this part for him, but it is just a blazing supernova of a performance and one that much like the show itself, you know, I feel like this gets buried sometimes in the coverage of her because she's so, she can, in all of her writing, she's sort of sassy or bawdy or forthright or whatever. She's she's deeply empathetic, you know? And Mm -hmm. so though this priest does things that priests are not supposed to do, quote unquote, the show actually has a fairly respectful, um, stance on who this priest is and what motivates him and, and where his loyalties lie and what his priorities are. You know, it's, it's quite affecting. And what he does with it, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I will watch this again just because it's a total pleasure, but also just to see a masterclass on what's possible with a person and making a whole person who, as you said, doesn't have a name, just has a title yeah. and yet is one of the most fully realized human beings on television in the last decade. Yeah. Um, plus, it's super sexy. It's so, it's, the chemistry is so wild and so fun. And again, it's just, it's, I'm noticing on this podcast, I'm praising things that are simple, which is probably another time I'm telling on myself about, you know, the struggles of writing TV shows. When you find something that is simple and that is elegant, it's kind of all you need. And so that idea that how do you challenge a character who will say anything and do anything, and it's to have her fall in love with, you know, plausibly the one person in the universe or the one, you know, category of person that cannot reciprocate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's at least in the way she wants is so simple and it's so powerful and then it's so expertly explored. I don't even know how I, it, I don't really feel like it's fair to really compare other TV to it or to compare it to other TV. One of the really wonderful, wonderful things that are happening, we talk a lot about what is exhausting or annoying about the constant barrage of content right now. And, and maybe we don't take a minute to just be like, holy shit, that happened. Um, you know, I, th- this is, this is really cool that, that something like this got made. This is, when, when I think we got really excited about TV about seven or eight years ago during Lost or maybe around The Sopranos, and then when we got re- like almost hyper-focused on what the machinations were behind giving us what we wanted, and there was that moment, I think, around Breaking Bad and Mad Men that we were like, maybe this is sort of where a lot of the great storytelling of the next 30 mm-hmm. or 40 years is going to happen, is on these episodic television shows where the stories that I think used to get told 
in the theaters and in, the, in movie theaters in the seventies and 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 some of the really high minded, really well thought out drama would be happening on TV. And you know, I've loved t- plenty of television shows, and I've probably like enjoyed because in in just like my personal taste, more shows than than this. But when you look at something like this, this really is the the fulfillment of a, of that promise. This really is, is like, what if you had this brilliant writer and you just let her do what she wanted? And it's pretty fucking amazing when you see it. Yeah, and then like with Donald Glover on Atlanta, honestly, yeah. it's just like, oh boy, we get to be alive and watch what they're going to do next. That's that's you the know? best way to end it. Yeah, that's exactly it what is, I would it, say. It, and I, I was thinking of Atlanta season one when I was first watching this. I was like, oh, this is last time I felt this swept away by a vision was was during Atlanta season one, which isn't to say anything about Robin season. It was just that that kind of uh, almost shock and feeling off your square about something. It's it's a Really, really, really cool way to feel. One of the benefits, and I think people who listen to the show, because they probably are similarly oriented in terms of how much they engage with culture and watch it, is you spend this as many hours as probably all of us do staring at the TV and being like, this is a box. And I love this box. And this box gives me things that I like and I recognize them. And it's, I get pleasure, I get inspiration, I get excited, whatever, I get furious. And then every so often someone comes along and it's like, it's, what if it's not a box? What if this was a cube the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> you're just, you know, you just, head explode emoji. Uh, this is one of those moments. Yeah. And I, I hope everybody's joining us on this journey. I know the journey most of you have been on is Chernobyl, which <laughs> I actually do really want to watch. But the thought of like moving to Albuquerque for four months and beginning my time there by just curling up in a ball watching Chernobyl. Well, there's a lot of really good stuff coming. There's Good Omens and Deadwood come out this weekend. Obviously, Chernobyl is going and Black Mirror is coming back for a few of, of those episodes. And then Dark is coming back at the end of June. So I'm we have so a lot of stuff. And, of course, Big Little Lies. So there's there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Obviously, Andy is going to be in and out uh, over the course mm-hmm. of the next couple of months. But we will be, you'll be hearing from him. So don't worry about it. <laughs> unless, unless I start watching too much Chernobyl. <laughs> in which case, please send help. Okay. Um, good talk. Great job. Go watch Fleabag Baranskis. Talk to you soon, man. Bye, buddy. Bye.